All Things Work is sponsored by Everfi. Revolutionize your approach to harassment prevention training with Everfi. Welcome to the All Things Work podcast from the Society for Human Resource Management. I'm your host, Tony Lee, Head of Editorial Operations here at SHRM, and thank you for joining us. All Things Work is an audio adventure where we talk with thought leaders and tastemakers to give you an insider's perspective on all things work. Now, in this episode, we will continue to bring you great coverage on how the world of work is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this week, we're turning our attention to some of the legal challenges that small businesses especially are now facing as a result of these times. We've received a lot of questions from members in recent weeks, and today we're joined by two guests who will help us address many of these tough issues. First is Janelle Stanton. Janelle is Managing Attorney of the Employment Law Group at Wagner, Falconer & Judd, and she practices exclusively management side and employment law. She advises small and medium-sized businesses on all facets of HR and employment law, as well as corporate law. Janelle also represents the brand new SHRM Legal Network, which is a service from SHRM that provides affordable legal advice to HR professionals, primarily at small businesses, and was created in partnership with Legal Shield. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you so much, Tony. Our second guest is SHRM's own Amber Clayton. Amber is the director of SHRM's HR Knowledge Center, which is a resource for SHRM members who can call in with their thorniest HR-related questions, and SHRM's team of HR experts will provide answers, guidance, and resources. By the way, Amber hosts another SHRM podcast, Honest HR, which is a show that looks at the complicated, uncomfortable, but also sometimes wonderful truths of the workplace. Welcome, Amber. Thank you, Tony. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Well, so Janelle, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind, with a question that uh, we're hearing an awful lot of, and that is, we have several employees who want to relocate to other states now that they can work remotely. First, do we have to allow it? And second, what needs to be considered? Yeah, that's a great question and actually something that I advised a client on earlier this week myself. They have several uh, employees that are working from home and an employee wanted to make a move to the state of California, uh, which for those of you who are well acquainted with California and their HR employment related laws, it's incredibly complicated to comply there. And so I let my client know if you uh, really, really, really love this employee and they're uh, super worth it. Yes. Let them go ahead and be the only employee of yours working in the state <laughs> of California. But if you, the cost can be definitely huge when you're looking at uh, having an employee relocate to a state, especially if they're going to be the only employee working in that particular state. You know, some of the considerations that you need to be thinking about are tax implications. Um, many states have reciprocity agreements with different uh, states so that you don't have to pay uh, that particular state's taxes, but not all states have that. So you might need to be paying uh, state or potentially local payroll taxes in those particular states. There's different registration requirements for state unemployment programs. I know some states have a minimum number of employees needed in order to get on that particular state's unemployment program, but you might have to comply with various different states 
programs there. But the biggest issue when an employee is considering moving into a new state is the litany of different laws that the employer might need to comply with. Um, this is especially true if you have an employee wanting to go into a state like California. And sorry for all those California listeners, but we pick on California a lot because it is, like I said, very difficult to comply for employers there. But New York, New Jersey, and some of these other very employee-friendly states are going to make it very difficult for a company to expand into. Um, there's different paid sick leave considerations, background check and drug testing laws vary widely. Um, Non-compete laws are, are really, really different. Uh, marijuana use laws are different. And marijuana is one of those areas where there's really strange bedfellows between the laws. Um, you know, some states are very... Uh, accommodating of uh, medical marijuana use, where Colorado, the first state to legalize medical marijuana, employers don't have to accommodate medical marijuana use there. So um, there's a lot of things to keep in mind. And for those reasons, the cost to allow an employee to relocate can be really prohibitive and not make financial sense. But we also know that it's really important to balance that cost against the loss of a good employee. So if the employee is a very valuable member of your team and you're comparing the cost of recruiting, hiring, and training a new employee versus you know, maybe a move to a state that's less progressive on the uh, employment law front, it may actually balance out we're in favor of keeping that employee. But you certainly don't need to allow it anytime an employee says, hey, I want to move to this state. Yeah, great advice. Thank you so much. And and trying to be a multi-state employer and understand the regulations across a lot of states is is can be very very difficult. A Amber, you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I would have said uh, everything that you mentioned. And um, you know, another consideration just from the cost perspective is whether or not you have those individuals traveling to a headquarters somewhere, and if they're moving out of state, you know, what the cost might be of of traveling, and whether or not the employee is going to be expecting any type of um, expense reimbursements. Some states actually have uh, requirements for reimbursements for uh, business expenses. So that's in addition to the other items that Janelle mentioned. Yeah, very good. And, you know, I think this, we're going to continue to hear this for the, the, the future as people are figuring out they can work remotely less expensively in other places. So, all right, let's move on to another question. Very different. Does the emergency paid sick leave, which is, you know, there's so many new rules and regulations, especially under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And I, I think the, the acronym is FICRA, if you're coming up, following the acronym uh, bingo card. But does the emergency paid sick leave under FICRA run concurrently with federal FMLA or state paid leave laws? Janelle? Yeah, so that's a really great question as well. And something that the Department of Labor has thankfully provided us some good guidance on. And you're right, employment law, HR, it is riddled with acronyms. Uh, we love our, our acronyms here. So under FICRA, there's two forms of leave. There's the emergency paid sick leave, EPSL, and there's the expanded family and medical leave. Under, I'll tackle EPSL first because that's the super easy one. Paid sick leave provided under EPSL is separate from any other leave that's provided under federal, state, or local law. So that does not run concurrently with other leave laws that might exist, including employers' own policies. Not the same situation with the EFML. So a good example here is that the Department of Labor actually provided is 
if you're eligible for pre-existing FMLA leave and uh, maybe in January you had a surgery to fix a torn rotator cuff and you took two weeks of time under the FMLA to recover for that, you have 10 weeks left then of FMLA for the year. Because the EFMLA is a type of FMLA leave, you would be entitled to take up to 10 weeks of the expanded family and medical leave rather than 12 weeks. And any expanded family and medical leave you take would count against your entitlement to that pre-existing FMLA, the traditional FMLA. One example that I find helpful, and again, pointing out to California, but um, for those California employers that have the California Family Rights Act, the FMLA and CFRA generally run concurrent for most types of leave other than pregnancy-related leave. So if an employee takes 12 weeks of FMLA or the EFMLA for school closure leave, but then they later have a serious health condition and need to care or need to care for a family member with a serious health condition, the employee is still going to be eligible for an additional 12 weeks under CFRA alone because school closure leave is not covered under CFRA. So there are two different types of leave in that particular situation. So you need to look at is the leave taken for a reason that's covered under both a state mini FMLA and the federal FMLA? And that's where you need to make that analysis and looking at the reason that the employee is taking the leave to consider whether they're going to run concurrently. Wow. It's a mouthful and you got it all covered. But Amber, I'm sure there's some aspects that you've heard in your calls uh, that you want to cover as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a question that we've gotten frequently from our members. And aside from what Janelle mentioned, look at the state paid leave laws as well. Just because the state paid leave laws or the state family medical leave laws, which many states do have, um, you want to make sure that you're looking at the guidance and eligibility for those and whether or not that runs concurrently with the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act. Also, with the emergency paid sick leave, I'll mention that we have had employers ask whether or not they can allow employees to use, for example, their paid vacation or sick leave with the EPSL when they're receiving two-thirds of their pay? And, and the answer is yes, they could allow it. They just can't require it. Right. Okay. Very good. Thank you. If listeners still have questions, we cover these topics extensively on SHRM.org. So I would encourage you to go to SHRM.org and just do a search for EPSL or FICRA, and you'll see all the latest information there. Um, let's pivot a little bit to testing, which has been a very hot topic. Can we require employees to test for COVID-19, Janelle? Yes. So in this situation, testing for COVID-19, what we're going to be looking at is the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. And the ADA says that any mandatory medical testing of employees must be job-related and consistent with business necessity. And so obviously in this situation with the special circumstances surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, it's very important that employers take steps to determine if employees that are coming into the workplace have COVID-19. Obviously, we're wanting to prevent that spread in the workplace as much as possible to prevent other lit litigation like workers' comp and negligence and things like that. So consistent with that ADA standard, employers can require that their employees be tested for COVID-19. Of course, they should do all of the other protocol as far as keeping the testing 
results uh, confidential. They should make sure that the tests are accurate and reliable. And so that's a that's something that employers really need to be watching out for. But keeping in mind that the guidance is actually different on antibody testing. So the EEOC guidance that we've received is that antibody testing does constitute a medical examination under the ADA. And because antibody test results are really inconsistent and we don't have a strong enough tie to that legitimate business purpose, that legitimate business necessity, that is not something that employers are able to require their employees take in order to be able to reenter the workplace. Okay. So I guess the key question then is, if an employee tests positive, what happens next? Can we require them to have a negative test before returning? Amber, what's your thought on that? Yeah, so the CDC has actually issued guidance on testing, and their suggestion or recommendation is that employers not require employees to receive a negative test before returning to work. And this is because, you know, many healthcare providers right now are, are really busy, and it could be that they may be delayed in, re, in getting those results and returning back to work. Um, so there, there is guidance around that, but um, an employer still can do that. Okay. Now, so Janelle, let me let me pivot on this a little bit. So one of the things that has been a real concern for a lot of employers is that you have employees who need their paycheck. They need to show up at work. And so they may not disclose that they have symptoms that are COVID related. What can an employer do if a, an employee comes to work sick and then perhaps infects others? Yeah, that's a very legitimate concern. And one thing that really stands out in my mind is when I hear something like that, when I hear an employee has symptoms, but they are still coming into work, I wonder whether the employer has implemented strong enough policies to cover these types of leave under FFCRA. Even if you're a company that may not be governed by the FFCRA, you, you have more than 500 employees, um, providing employees a really safe, you know, free from retaliation way to take this time out that they need so that the virus is not spread inside your workplace is so important. So if you have an employee that's risking infecting others to come into work when they know they have symptoms, the first thing I'm thinking is what is the employer's policy here? Is it strong enough? Have you really communicated to your employees that they will not be retaliated against for coming forward to say, yes, I have symptoms and I'm going to be staying home? So that's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind. Although the second thing really is your Typically, in a situation, if you have an employee who's lied to you on something that might seem somewhat minor, you know, that might be a great situation for verbal coaching, maybe a written warning. But if an employee is lying about their symptoms or, you know, covering it up and still coming into work, that's a pretty egregious lie that puts a lot of other people at risk. And so I definitely do think that discipline, including potentially termination, could be warranted in that situation. Um, But again, make sure that your policies are really open and honest about if you have symptoms, you need to take this leave. It is protected and it's there for you for that reason. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's great advice, Amber. Yeah, and I think that you you hit the nail on the head, Janelle. That communication is key. You don't want to make assumptions that because someone has coughed one time that they have coronavirus or that they have uh, the symptoms of coronavirus when it could 
be allergies. You just don't know. So you want to make sure that you're communicating. Now, of course, if you do know that the employee has lied or they've admitted that they've lied to work, then of course, you know, I would agree that disciplinary action up to including termination would be appropriate. Yeah. So uh, the other side of this are employees, you know, every day, more and more businesses are reopening, depending on where they're located. And, and frankly, some businesses are closing again after reopening. So what do you say to the employee who says, look, I'm just too fearful to come to work? You know, you may be now requiring me to come back in, but I, I can't do it. I fear for my life. I fear for my family, maybe someone I care for. Janelle, what, what's an employer to do? Yeah, that's a very common concern that our clients have and something that um, they're coming to us for guidance on just about every day. So it really depends on the reason that the employee cites as the basis for their fear. If the basis for that fear is their own underlying medical condition that puts that employee at greater risk for contracting COVID-19 or suffering a more serious form of the illness, then that's when it's time to explore whether the employee's underlying medical condition is going to qualify as a disability that might need to be accommodated under the ADA. So anytime you're, you have an employee saying, I would like to work from home, I need this change in the conditions of my work because of an underlying illness, ADA should, red flags should go off in your mind immediately. And that's when it's time to start that interactive process and talk to the employee, see what that condition is, and consider whether you can accommodate that. The flip side is obviously the coronavirus is scary. We don't know enough about it. And so people are justifiably very afraid of contracting COVID. And HR teams really need to be cognizant of that fear. And I think take a you know more gentle approach to it. But ultimately the fact is, if an employee is just afraid of contracting COVID, or even if they have a family member or friend, that they live with that's at higher risk. Unfortunately, the ADA does not protect an employee in that particular situation. So without a valid basis for an accommodation, if an employee refuses to return to work after being recalled, it's likely that ultimately they may get terminated. And in most states, that refusal to work, even when the employee has been called back, even with some of these loosened restrictions on unemployment eligibility, um, that's likely to impact that employee's ability to qualify for unemployment. So you have to look at what is that underlying basis for the fear? Do they have their own you know, underlying medical condition or is it just a fear because this is new and it's scary? Yeah. And Amber, I know you guys have gotten a lot of calls with extenuating circumstances left and right. I mean, what, where do you end up falling? We have, and, and we provide similar guidance to our members. And um, in addition to that, I think that employers just need, need to ensure that they're communicating with their employees what safety measures they've been taking in order to reduce the risk of getting exposure to COVID in the workplace. So um, sometimes we find that the employees are just not aware of what the employers have done before returning back to the workplace. So I think it's really important to make sure that they are communicating with their employees the measures that they've taken, such as putting up plexiglass shields, for example, or signage on the floor or limiting the number of people within break rooms or lunch rooms or staggering schedules, all the different types of safety measures that employers have put into place to keep their employees, their visitors, and their customers safe. Well, I, I can't believe it. We've, we've run through this already. It's, it's a lot of great information. But before we go, Janelle, you first. If there was one piece of advice you would offer an HR professional at a small company right now, what would that be? 
I, it's two pieces, one practical component and one just sort of real, uh, realistic component. Practical component is put in place a pandemic response plan. Make sure you have in writing all of those things that Amber was just mentioning, all of the safety protocol that you've put in place, um, environmental administrative changes, have that document ready, get it to your employees. That's super critical. But then the other part is have a, a healthy dose of humanity. This is a scary time for everybody. Everybody's living through an unprecedented time. This is very stressful for HR as well. So really take, take a step back and think about you know, what's going on in your employees' lives. They may have lost somebody important to them. They might be scared. So um, having that healthy dose of humanity, I think, is going to go a long way. Amber, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree about the humanity. I was just going to say to be flexible. I mean, we all are challenged by COVID-19 in various ways. And so if employers can find the ways to be flexible for their employees to continue to work with them and to help with maybe telework or providing those modified schedules or modified workplaces, all of those things are really important right now as we go through this together. And secondly, I would just say this is evolving. We're learning something new from COVID-19 every day. Um, as you can see, the CDC changes guidance pretty frequently. So, you know, keep up with the changes if you can. Go to websites like ours.org for relevant information and, you know, keep up so that you know um, what's to come and how you're going to handle it moving forward. Yeah, terrific advice. Well, uh, that is going to do it for this episode of All Things Work. A big thank you to Janelle Stanton and to Amber Clayton for joining me and talking about the legal issues that small businesses are facing as a result of the pandemic. If you have additional questions that we didn't get to and you are a SHRM member, I would encourage you to start by going to SHRM.org and reading the great content that we're publishing every day on this topic. Um, if you're still not seeing what you need, go to the SHRM Knowledge Center and talk to a knowledge advisor. If if they can't help you, then I'm sure they will be happy to refer you to Sherm's new legal network where you can get actual legal advice from an attorney. Before we get out of here, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to give us a five-star rating and leave a review. And be sure to check out Sherm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can find all our episodes and more podcasts on our website at sherm.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time on All Things Work. All Things Work is sponsored by EverFi. Enough is enough. All of us have heard the demand for change. It's time to answer the call. EverFi offers proactive workplace training that teaches employees what to do instead of what not to do. EverFi learners can confidently take action when they see behavior that is not aligned with their company values. Revolutionize your approach to harassment prevention training with EverFi. Learn more at everfi.com slash allthingswork. That's E-V-E-R-F-I dot com slash allthingswork.